This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer. And I'm Stephen Ray Morris. Hosts of the Purrcast. That's Purr with three R's. It's a podcast all about cats. We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love them. Each episode, we invite a fellow feline lover, comedians, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends. Tune in to The Purrcast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to The Purrcast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Right meow. This is Exactly Right. This is the fall line. For most true crime lovers, theories are the most interesting aspect of any mystery. We love them. We construct and reconstruct information. We pour over court documents, news reports, minute details. We study the position of a car seat, the phrasing of a suicide note, a possible sighting in a cafe. But in a case like Danette and Jeanette Milbrooks, where there is nothing to analyze, no one pays attention, and the victims become ghosts. Thus, any theory must be constructed from the ground up, and it will only truly be fleshed out when law enforcement decides to finally tackle it. Let's hope we can make that happen. In discussion of theories, we'll start with the least likely that they were runaways and move on from there. Our podcast has served to dismiss this very idea. The twins were not showing any signs that they wanted to leave home. Their activities on their last day, the importance of Danette's seizure medication, the effort they put into getting bus fare, we can confidently state that if they left that day, it wasn't of their own volition. They might have taken a ride with someone that they trusted. They might have been sidetracked by an acquaintance or even a cute teenage boy or two. But nothing about their activities screams planned. So enough with the running away. There are other stories regarding well-known offenders who were active in the South at that time. These are worth discussing, though we consider them to ultimately be poor leads. Three serial killers, Henry Louis Wallace, who was known as the Taco Bell Strangler, Ronaldo Javier Rivera, and John Boyder, a long-haul trucker, were all operating in Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina at the time. Henry Louis Wallace largely killed in North Carolina, and he preyed on those he knew mostly his co-workers. Boyder's long-haul trips made it convenient for him to target his victims of choice, white, transient sex workers. Ronaldo Rivera targeted blonde, white females who were all adults. While there are predators that throw a wide net, these three had narrow victim profiles and likely wouldn't have crossed paths with the Millbrook twins. We've got to tackle another popular theory that we view as highly unlikely— that law enforcement was involved in the twins' disappearance and that the resulting lack of investigation is part of some sophisticated cover-up. In brief, we don't buy it. We see why others might. It's easier to believe in concrete evil than it is to recognize the full impact of official apathy. A cover-up would take effort, and there has been no energy devoted to this case at all. That possibility is hard to live with because it feels accidental, a small fault that gets bigger. The original investigator in this case did not care about missing children who didn't look like him or live in a nice neighborhood like he did. There are other unsolved cases in the Augusta area, but most don't fit. 
robberies, attacks in houses, domestic crimes. But there have been a few worth noting. Aiken, South Carolina is very close to Augusta, maybe 30 minutes. And in Aiken, there are female casualties dating back decades, with a concentration in the late 80s and early 90s. There are bodies found off of Highway 191 near Shaw Creek. Outside of a woman named Jackie Council, a mother who disappeared in 1986 after dropping her kindergartner off at school, none have been identified. There were three bodies found in that immediate area. This isn't the end that Shantae wanted to imagine for Danette and Jeanette, but she's been forced to consider it. In the late 1990s, she saw a facial reconstruction model of one of the women on the news. Shantae discusses that moment in the following interview. Yeah, this was probably like the early 2000. It was a um, young lady body that they had found off of Riverwatch Parkway. And the face that they reconstructed looked like my sister Jeanette. Because back then when they got missing, Jeanette had a jerry curl. This person had a jerry curl. Her face was reconstructed and it looked just like Jeanette. I'm told I looked just like her. But when we called down there, they told us it wasn't under her. But they never had any DNA and anything off of Jeanette and them because they never had been in no trouble or nothing like that. So I was trying to figure out how did they know if it wasn't her or not. The Aiken Doe, as we've taken to calling her, does bear a striking resemblance to Jeanette. The age is a little off, with former coroner Sue Townsend suspecting that this woman might have been in her early 20s, but it's still something that Richmond County should explore. After all, the twins' case was closed when the remains were found. There is no way they would have made a comparison and ruled out Jeanette or Danette. Another idea that comes up in the case of any missing woman is sex trafficking. In 1990, it wasn't on the public radar, but it was certainly occurring. Tourist centers like Augusta had a thriving illegal sex industry, and we can only guess as to the sexual exploitation of children that may have occurred then. According to more modern statistics from the Georgia Center for Public Policies, an estimated 374 girls are sexually exploited each month in Georgia. And the average age for entry into the sex industry is between 12 and 14 years. There's a high rate of interstate and intercounty travel, with Atlanta being the prime destination for most traffickers. Could this have been the case of the twins? If so, they couldn't still be in Augusta. The city just isn't large enough for that. But could they have ended up in Atlanta, Florida, even Mexico? In next week's episode, we'll speak to a trafficking expert who can offer information that can help us judge the likelihood of that scenario. If the twins are alive, this would likely be the reason why. There are also other people who are closer to home that should be examined. The twins' neighborhood was home to a number of predators, including their own biological father. Extended family members have declined to comment on record about his activities, but Miss Louise remembers their turbulent relationship. She remembers abuse. She remembers that he shot at visitors through his own front door, that he was rumored to be cruel to his own mother and sister, who were dependent on him. Danette and Jeanette didn't spend much time with him, but they did go to his house to visit their grandmother. He didn't have a car, but his friends did. And after the twins' disappearance, he was convicted of helping those same friends out, namely by hiding the body of a man they'd killed in a drug deal that had gone wrong. He rolled the body up in an old rug and drove it to the city dump. We've reached out to him several times, but haven't gotten an answer back. He's never been interviewed, 
He refused to give a DNA sample in 2013. He told his adult daughter, the twin's oldest sister, to change her phone number and avoid law enforcement. We're not saying that he'd hurt his children, but you start close to home. That brings us finally to the man who we uncovered when searching the archives of the Augusta Chronicle. We stumbled across the crimes of Joseph Patrick Washington, a convicted rapist and alleged serial killer, when we were looking for other women who'd gone missing in the area. Washington died of AIDS in 1999. At the time, he was serving a sentence for kidnapping and rape and awaiting trial for murder. The DA had held off on that last charge because he felt that Washington wouldn't survive to stand trial. In the photos we gained through open records requests, we see a gaunt figure dressed in baggy state-issued scrubs and wearing two large glasses. His hair is long and styled in a sort of unkempt afro. He looks sick. Records indicate that, at one point, he was 150 pounds. That's stocky for 5'4". He's said to have often worn a fisherman's cap and sunglasses, even inside. He drove three cars, an older model yellow Pinto, a Dodge Omni, and an Oldsmobile Cutlass. He may have had access to other vehicles. After all, he worked transport for Mary Brick Brickyards. According to former Augusta Sheriff Ronnie Strength, Washington was a prolific predator. He kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and in some cases murdered women who matched the following description. Black, with short hair, ranging from their teens to their 30s. Some of these women were alleged to be sex workers, and some were simply walking down the street in daylight. Washington's approach was to drive alongside the women, hold them at gunpoint, and then force them into his car. He'd then move on to another location, in some cases the brickyard ponds, and assault them. The details here are intense, so for the next minute or so, listener discretion is advised. His method was to disable his victims with a gunshot to the stomach and then sexually assault them as they bled from their wounds, holding up his own t-shirt so it didn't get dirty. Several of the survivors described that he'd grasped the shirt in his teeth. He'd then leave them for dead. Only a few survived. How close was he operating to the twins' path that day? As the map we've posted to our website shows, he was active in Bethlehem. One of Washington's victims was abducted from the Smile gas station on 15th and MLK. Remember, the twins disappeared from 12th and MLK. Washington also lived nearby at 104 East Hale Street. That's just a few blocks from the home of the twins' biological father. And based on reports from his friends, the men knew each other. To get to his home on East Hale and to the Marybrook Brickyard, Washington very well might have traveled down MLK. According to the records that we received from the prosecutor's office, Washington took his victims between one and four miles from the site of their kidnapping. He might have traveled even further. A single news article from the early 1990s tells us that former Aiken coroner Sue Townsend suspected Washington in the cases of the women found at Shaw Creek. Washington's assault stretched back to at least 1991, with most authorities suspecting he committed his first assaults and possibly his first murder as early as 1986. According to the Augusta Chronicle, the GBI took multiple samples from Washington's cars and his home. These samples were collected in 1993, two years after the twins' case was closed. Recall that familial DNA wasn't taken from their mother and sister until 2013. Thus, it has never been compared to samples from Washington's crimes. 
We've submitted open records requests to the GBI, but so far, there's been no response. Many have asked whether a single perpetrator could kidnap two people at once. Well, if he had a gun pointed at one twin, would the other have ever left her sister behind? Though Washington's youngest assault victim was 18, the twins can't be discounted based on their age. They were of average height and they were physically developed. Shantae thinks that they could have easily been taken for young adults. As they walked through Bethlehem, grown men had certainly treated them as such. We passed all of this along to Richmond County, and then we gave them the records we'd amassed and the maps we'd made. We struggled with the best method of presentation, but it was easier than when we gave the family the same data. They had no idea that a serial killer had been operating in their own neighborhood at the same time that the twins disappeared. Can you describe how you felt and your reaction when we first were at your house and we told you about the Joseph Patrick Washington information? It was all the thought that came through my mind, wondering, was he the one that did something to my sister? Because if he had done all these things he'd done to these other women, maybe, just maybe, he could be the person that we were looking for that actually probably did something to them. If he was around in the same area that they had walked, you know, I mean, some of the women that he had picked up was around in the same area where my sister and them went missing from. So, I mean, a lot ran across my mind about the situation, but, I mean, we just don't know. Had you ever heard of him or any of his crimes before we started talking about that? No, ma'am. I was shocked when you said something about it. I mean, because they never even said anything about that back then, you know. My sister and them got missing. I think had they had to say something, then, you know, they could have looked into it to see if he had been the one that did something to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was around in the same area, you know, where they got missing from. So I'm assuming, you know, they could have looked into him as in they disappeared. I was not aware of any of that. I was just as shocked when y'all told me that. And I know my mom was. And then when I started worrying, what if he had done something to them, you know? And it's almost 27 years. What would they find? You know, where would they find their bodies if he had did it? What would we have to even say, okay, well, at least we know this is them. I mean, it could be just some bones or something. I mean, we don't, I don't know. I thought about he could have did something to me. Cause I used to walk out there, me and a couple of my cousins. You know, I mean, that could have been us. That could have been, you know, anybody, you know. Just think about it. Had, that, had I walked with them that day, you know, I probably could have been gone too. And you had asked to go with them. Yes, I did ask to go with them, but they told me they was coming right back. They said, I will be back. I said, where y'all going? They was like, <laughs> first they was like, no way you need to know. I said, well, I already know where y'all going. Go to Ted's house. I said, I want to go. They said, girl, we'll be back. That was the last thing they ever said to me. We'll be back. And it's 27 years later, and they're not back. Still haven't seen them to this day. A final point of comparison is a name you might recognize from our prologue episode, Augusta. Tiffany Nelson, the nine-year-old who disappeared from a gas station in 1994. 
Her remains were discovered in 2005 in a shallow grave in a wooded area in the adjacent Columbia County. She was identified by her light blue Air Jordans, and her bike was never found. She was younger than the twins, but the proximity, her race, her gender, this makes a connection worth exploring. DNA might create that path, but Richmond County Sheriff's Office has got to greenlight the money and time it would take to run the necessary tests. So far, the Sheriff's Office hasn't made it publicly known that they're following any leads. We, the podcast anyway, can't change that. But listeners can You're the ones who have the power to contact the sheriff's office and local elected officials and tell them you want answers for this family. You can share the twin story with those who have influence. You can call and write the media. You can demand once and for all that Augusta makes some effort to bring the twins home. For a long time, Shantae believed that no one cared about her sisters, but now it's become evident that you do. You just hadn't seen them. The Fall Line, an investigative podcast focusing on unsolved cases in the Southeast, is back this August with Season 5. This series covers the 1998 disappearance of Shaikimia Pate, an 8-year-old from Unadilla, Georgia. As a little girl, I can remember that uh, Shasha was very energetic and bubbly. Seldom did you see her without a smile. She had a beautiful smile. She, she was just a real bubbly, smart, smart little girl. Shaikimia was excited to spend that Labor Day weekend with her family, starting with attendance of the first high school football game of the season. In their tiny town of Unadilla, Georgia, that was a big event. That Friday afternoon, Shaikimia stepped off her front porch and onto the sidewalks of the street she'd lived on her whole life. She planned to wait outside for a ride from her older sister. She was seen by neighbors, friends, family. Everyone thought she'd made it to see the Dooley County Bobcats play. But she never made it there. And so I thought Swan had took her to the game until 1230 that night when Veronica called me and told me, she called me, she asked me, what's Sha with me? And I said, no, nah. I said, you mean you don't know what Sha at? I called the police, but nobody, he didn't come. And then when he did come, he said she had to be missing 24 hours before they'll go looking for her. Shaikimia Pate vanished right off her own street. Though her disappearance is as mysterious and as arresting as that of Madeline McCann, she has received very little attention. Despite a $20,000 reward and exhaustive work by Shaikimia's family, Veronica Pate, her mother, has been left waiting for 21 years. She made an effort to be optimistic that, that Shai would be back. She kept trying to prove that it's going to be all right, leaving the door unlocked, leaving a light on, because Shasha coming home. Each hour in a missing person's case matters. So what about a cold case unsolved for decades? Some of the things that we run into working cold cases is that these cases, I mean, they're old, and um, people's memory is not what they used to be. Memories fade. People die. Few outside of rural middle Georgia have ever heard of Shaikimia Pate. But maybe, with your help, that can change. 
This season on the fall line from Exactly Right, we work with Shikimia's family, the local sheriff, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to produce detailed coverage of her case and generate new leads. 2019 has seen decades-old cold cases come to a close. And so it's time to give Shakimia's open case and her mother's open door the attention they needed, deserved, years ago. This is The Fall Line. We hope you'll join us on August 7th for Episode 1, September 4th, 1998.